Is Canada having a conservative moment? If you haven't heard, the Conservative Party, the Federal Conservative Party, just held their national policy convention in Quebec City. It was held against the backdrop of polls showing leads of between 12 and 14%. Yes, there was the one poll that said, you know, they're tied, but for the most part, a strong trend in favor of Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives over Justin Trudeau and the liberals. This comes at the same time as most of the provinces are now governed by center-right parties. So is there a conservative moment in Canada? And if so, what's driving it? And what can we learn from people in other jurisdictions where they've had longstanding conservative governments? Our next guest is someone who was a speaker, one of the headline speakers at the Conservative Convention on the weekend. But before we get to him, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast and please do hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, leave a comment, share this on social media where you're still allowed to do whatever you can to help spread the word, because I think we bring good conversations here and we want to share that with everyone. Well, Daniel Hannon is someone who is currently in the House of Lords in the UK. His official title is Lord Hannon of Kinsclare. Uh, back when I first got to know him, he was just a member of the European Parliament campaigning to get the UK out of the European Union. He had a famous speech of dressing down of Gordon Brown in the EU Parliament that brought him to the attention of conservatives around the world. And since then, I've met up with him at the Conservative Political Action Convention in Washington, D.C., at the Manning Conference in Ottawa. And he is someone who spends a lot of time looking at conservative politics around the Anglosphere. So he seemed like a good person, a keynote speaker at the convention, someone very aware of this country, to bring in and talk about that. Are we having a conservative moment? What is Pierre Polyev bringing to the table that is attracting voters, and what can we learn from parties like his, the UK Conservative Party, which seems to be in a bit of trouble right now after 13 years in government? We spoke to Daniel Hannon from Quebec City. Lord Hannon, welcome to Canada. How are you enjoying Quebec City? Who wouldn't enjoy Quebec City, Brian? I mean, I've just been looking around the uh, the headquarters of the Royal 22nd, the famous, famous Van Dues who won Eight Victoria crosses at Amiens probably turned the course of the whole war. The first time the Germans had broken and run and they were running from Canadian troops. And what a, you know, I, I feel English Canada could learn a thing or two about taking pride in your identity and history from Quebecers. <laughs> Absolutely, we could. Um, it, it's um, It's been some time since you and I spoke. I don't, uh, you were not a Lord. You were not appointed to the House of Lords. So uh, before we get into Canadian politics and all of that, uh, what's it like being a Lord, Daniel? <laughs> well, we are, so we're, we're the upper, upper house, right? And we're yeah, the uh, equivalent of our Senate. The equivalent of your Senate. And I'll tell you, actually, do you know one thing which I hadn't really appreciated, but which I'm a strong believer in now? We are, uh, we get a kind of per diem when we're there, but we've got, we're not given a salary. So the expectation is that you carry on doing whatever you were already doing for a living. And I wonder whether this isn't a model that could be more widely applied, right? How many parliaments would be improved if we had citizen legislators who you know, we're doing whatever, you know, we're carrying on being teachers or plumbers or solicitors or whatever it was, and are then doing this as a kind of, as a privilege rather than as a full-time occupation, which makes them completely reliant on the state. I, 
I feel it would it would kind of give us slightly more balanced governments. I, I you know, I, I can think of a few uh, smaller U.S. states that you know uh, practice something similar, not quite the same, but similar, where it tends to well, be. And one, and one very big U.S. state, right? Which does it? Uh, which is Texas, which is getting the, the most immigration from every other state and booming and so on. It's it's not a bad thing. Let me ask you, uh, you're in Quebec City because you're speaking at the Conservative Convention, and um, I'll ask you what the convention's been like in a little bit, but uh, you are a a firm believer in Pierre Polyev. Uh, You wrote about him during the Conservative leadership race. How is a, a man from England who has served as a member of the European Parliament, who has, uh, you know, been a, a columnist for British media. How do you know so much about Pierre Polyev and why are you convinced that he's what Canada needs, you foreigner, you? Yeah, no, I really am convinced. Well, first of all, come on. I mean, you guys to us at least are not really foreigners, your, your family. But let me put it like this. I... I may be the only person in the world who can say this. Because Stephen Harper once said to me, a, an absolutely hard rule of politics is that every leader is disappointed in his successor, like whatever the country, whatever the party. So I may be the only person who can say that I'm very proud to number as friends all of the recent Canadian Conservative leaders, Stephen Harper uh, and Andrew Scheer and Erin O'Toole and Pierre. But let's be honest, the other two never really, the intervening two never had a a shot at it because Trudeau had inherited such a great economic legacy from the Harper government, you know, uh, falling taxes, budget surplus, low crime, secure borders, government that was working for the people. It takes quite a long time to burn through that, right? You can you can dash off the edge of the cliff like Wiley Coyote with your, with your legs spinning around. It takes a while. And that's the moment that we've reached now, which is why I feel that, that Pierre is in with a, a, a shot for the first time. But that's not really the case for Pierre. That's like a, that's the case against Trudeau. I think Pierre is just extraordinary in his insight, instinct, and ability. I see a contrast between Justin Trudeau, who is a guy from a, a, a very privileged background who's had everything easy, but who actually turned out to be quite mediocre when things got rough. I mean, he was he was fine as a fair-weather prime minister, you know, telegenic, good-looking. Don't know why he has that thing about putting on so much makeup, um, but, you know, fine until, until things got tough. Pierre is the opposite. Pierre has come from a very ordinary background. A lot of people, I think, would relate to it, you know, delivering newspapers when he was a kid in, in suburban Calgary. But he is extraordinary in his analysis. And I was watching him when he was on the, the budgets committee or the finance committee, whatever it's called here, grilling all the central bank governors back in the lockdown in, in like April, May, June of 2020, saying, what's going to happen with the inflation? Why are we printing all this money? What's the plan B if the inflation mm-hmm. takes off? And they were all saying, ah, it's not going to be any inflation. No, the problem is going to be <laughs> deflation. No, you don't know what you're talking about. So, I mean, this is the guy who got the diagnosis right. He's got the prescription right. He's got a plan to get back to a country where people can, you know, earn decent money and, and afford a house. I, I, I wish we had politicians like I wish we could clone him and have him in other countries. Well, I'll ask you about Britain in a little while, but, you know, just... Um as the conservative conventions going on, we get this jobs report um, that um, shows, okay, job creation's going well, 40,000 jobs added, but 
we added 103,000 new people to the country last uh, month. And that's just working age, 15 and older. And we're in the middle of a housing crisis uh, that's driven by the lack of supply. We, <laughs> we don't have enough houses for the people that are here already. We're adding a middle-sized city in a month. It, One thing you are not short of here is land, right? Yeah. I mean, Canada is the second largest country in the world. You, you, it, it, we, we have constraints in, in the UK, sadly. You do not. It, is, it takes a real organizing genius to have created a housing shortage in a country the size of this one. And by the way, a labor shortage. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that is extraordinary, and which I, I like to think that Pierre has a plan for again, is how many qualified immigrants here are not able to work because of what Pierre calls the gatekeepers, right? In other words, mm-hmm. all the producer interests and the needless bureaucracies designed to hurt consumers by keeping out competition. So it is crazy in this country that you have immigrant doctors working as Uber drivers, that you have, you know, scientists, teachers kind of working as, you know, sweeping the, the, the floor in, in barbers. If, if we could just uh, move to a, a more immediate recognition of people's qualifications, everybody would win. Well, what we've got right now and what we didn't have when my parents came here was um, these organizations that act more like uh, feudal societies of um, keeping people out rather than just being regulators. And so they're not there to regulate the profession or the trade. They're there to make sure that there's a scarcity of that profession or trade so that the people get paid more. Uh, oh, but we're short of doctors. Oh, we're short of nurses. We're short of electricians. Oh, well, you know, we're going to keep them out. And, and that's been going on for a long time. And I, I think it's good to hear somebody at the federal level talking about that because we go around the world and we sell the dream of coming to Canada. And then you get here and you find out there's no houses and you can't do your job. From your mouth to God's ear, Brian. I mean, Okay, you say we've had this problem for a long time. We have, yes, indeed. It is an intrinsic problem, right? Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations talks about people from the same trade or profession never get together, even for merriment or diversion, but it ends in some conspiracy to raise prices or disadvantage the public. Completely, there's nothing new about that, right? Of course, if you are a doctor, teacher, whatever, you you want the, the most advantageous position for yourself. I don't blame people for that. But the role of the politician because no one else can do it, is to stand up for the consumer, right? And to make sure that all these organizations are working for the rest of us rather than just for themselves. And it is really encouraging to hear a politician doing that. I mean, look, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to be a kind of come over old teenage girl fan here, but I look at how Pierre has already transformed the demographics of his party, the way he's attracted all these young people, the way he's attracted all these settlers from other places who, for exactly the reason you say, feel that their dream of Canada is being thwarted by bureaucracy. Uh, The way he's revolutionized his party support among the working people that Canada depends on, right? The people who drive things, dig things, make things, right? And I think if if he's done that in, in opposition, what could he be like as prime minister? How amazing to have a conservative leader who's managed to get ahead with young people, because he's telling the truth about the situation, that this generation has been screwed, that the people who paid the highest price for the lockdown, for a disease that was of no threat to them at all, have now come out and been presented with a bill for the whole bloody thing, and then can't get on the housing ladder because the central bank is acting like an ATM machine on behalf of a spendthrift government. How 
brilliant to have a conservative politician who's been able to turn monetary policy into a popular cause. Right? And, and if he can do that in opposition, I would love to see him in office. Let me ask you about the the fact that you mentioned that he is, he's attracting people from all walks of life, uh, from different uh, backgrounds. I'm just trying to pull up the poll here now in front of me. Um, Abacus Data looked at who you're supporting based on what kind of job you do. And for people in, uh, oh, here it is now. Um, we know that according to Abacus, the conservatives are about 41%. Uh, frontline retail, 34%. Public services, 39%. Service sectors, private and not-for-profit, 38%. But trades, manufacturing, and transportation, 51% backing the conservatives, to 20% for the Liberals, 14% for the NDP. That, I can't remember the last time a Canadian politician got over 51% of anything. That is a a staggering figure. How does that relate to what uh, the British Conservatives did several years ago? Mainly, I, I would argue, under Boris Johnson, but perhaps you can correct me on that, where you went and said, okay, we need to talk to to these people, who, the people that do the everyday jobs that get overlooked, the people that used to be assumed were labor voters. Is Pierre running a similar plan to what Johnston did in the UK all those years ago? Yeah, I mean, so f- first of all, there is no dishonor in resting on the support of the people who actually get stuff done and make things, right? I mean, the the, the the people you and I talk for a living, right? The, the, but 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 a uh, uh, a country rests on the people who say little but do much, and uh, and it is it's fantastic to uh, uh, to have connected with a, a majority of, of of working people uh, with, as you say, numbers that, that politicians in other countries would kill for. But yeah, I think you're right. Brian, I think this is kind of a global phenomenon, right? It's a, it's a realignment in that it used to be that parties of the left spoke for industrialized labor and parties of the right were, you know, rural and, and whatever. I mean, that world is gone. There's very, very few people now who, you know, the, the, the number of people who work in these mass workforces as steel workers or miners is small. People, when we talk about working people now, they are much more likely to be self-employed or working in in small companies. Uh, And so the kind of corporatist message of the left doesn't really connect in the way that it would have done. You know, I I look at my kids who range in age from seven to 21. I don't think any of them is ever going to have a job, as as you and I understood that word in the 20th century, right? I think they're going to go through life constantly reskilling and freelancing and adapting to accelerating technology. And so Trade union-based parties of the left really seem literally to belong, as they do, to to another century. And this is an opportunity that conservatives around the world have taken to appeal to people on cultural issues. And, you know, I'm saying this from the outside as a a friend of Canada and a friend of Canadian democracy, but the the kind of identity politics uh, phenomenon has gone further here than almost anywhere else, especially among broadcast media and academics, the the cancel culture, the intolerance, the the obsession with racial issues. Um, To have a leader who says this is a post-national state, there's no core Canadian identity, you know, 
and, and I think that has, you know, that has left a lot of people thinking, well, hang on, wait a minute. There is a, there is a nation here. We're not just a government with a population attached. There is a Canadian nation. And not just any nation, right? It, it's a pretty decent nation, which has achieved some pretty good things. It was on the right side in the two world wars, on the right side in the Cold War. It's exported freedom. You know, mm-hmm. our children are not just a random collection of individuals who are going to get a, a decaffeinated passport with snowflakes on it, right? <laughs> it's, it, 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 there is something here that is, it doesn't matter where our parents were born. There's something when you come here that should be the common inheritance of every Canadian and a pretty darn good inheritance it is. So you think that um, conservatives can win on on the cultural issues, that when you're attracting these people who are private sector workers in, in trade unions, you know, the, the skilled laborers, um, the skilled trades, is it economic issues that attract them? Because that's how, uh, you know, at the provincial level in Ontario, the Ford government has gone about it. They've basically said, well, the other guys don't want to build anything. They don't want to build highways. They don't, they don't want to build infrastructure. They don't want to build homes. We do. And guess what you do? You build homes. You build highways. You build infrastructure. We'll put you to work. Uh, that, mm. that won the Ford government the support of uh, trade unions, including the one my late father uh, was part of, that I never thought would have backed a Tory party. Uh, but do, do you think it's those issues or is it the cultural issues? Is it both? Because to me, the NDP is now the, the party of the faculty club. They're not the party of the trade union hall. They're the party of the faculty club. And I think they've lost their way. So how is it that Pierre brings these folks in and, and keeps them as part of his coalition? I think it, it is generally the economic issues and especially at a time like this when we are wrestling with uh, you know putting things back together after the lockdowns um, which were needlessly long and uh, restrictive here uh, and so uh, understandably the main pitch of any politician is going to be I will bring prices down I'll bring taxes down you'll, you'll keep more of your money um, which I think you know the the, the the Tories are doing pretty convincingly and Pierre as I say has the track record to, to prove this even among fairly woke younger voters, they still want to be able to fill their car, by, you know, afford a house one day, you know. Uh, and so that's the primary message. But it doesn't follow that you have nothing to say about, I mean, let's not call it culture wars, that's a kind of uh, imported Americanism, but let's call it uh, patriotism, right? As recently as, uh, as 2020, there were 10 statues of Sir John A. Macdonald in this country. And now there are two one in Toronto and one in Ottawa, and they are under constant police protection, right? Now, what is it that Sir John has done that, that is such a crime? Is it just being a dead white guy? Is it being a Tory? Or is it really, in the eyes of the people who are vandalizing his statue, that his crime was to have created this country in the first place? And you see, I, I, I think there, there's, there's been this overreach by some of the workies and this unwillingness of, of, of the Liberal government to condemn them, which has created a space for people who wouldn't have ever considered themselves as being on the right to say, well, hang on, this is crazy, right? Uh, we, we can't trash all of the things that make our country distinctive. And at the same time, you know, fire people who disagree uh, or, or, or persecute people who say something inconvenient or, or, or you know, who 
say that you know women have uteruses or whatever. It was like may, this may have been wrong, but I I saw a case. I think it was in British Columbia of a teacher who was fired for saying that um, the majority of the indigenous children that the, the, the supposed genocide cases about died of natural causes, which which of course is true. Oh, like, no, horrible tu- tuberculosis but, was the major cause. As horrible disease. Kids were all over the world. I mean, a horrible, horrible thing, right? But um, but that is not a a genocide, and uh, you know, it, it is that story strikes me as one of the oddest things that y- you see this reported in the UK or in the US. Uh, other than a couple of shows like yours, it is utterly ignored here. The fact, the fact that the other day they found that there weren't these mass graves that you know had prompted all the attacks on churches and so on, it's just unreported in, in any mainstream media here. And I thought, God, Canada's becoming like one of those Soviet countries where the dissidents had to get something into a foreign newspaper to get it known, right? Because it, it, it was, it was repre- except that this is all happening voluntarily. Now, that creates an understandable reaction from many sensible, level-headed, middle-of-the-road people who don't see themselves at all as right-wing culture warriors, but who just think, hang on, it cannot be, it's un-Canadian, right, to live in a country where people are persecuted for saying something that's true. All right, Daniel, um, we got to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to ask you about the state of the UK Conservative Party and the Conservative movement. Are there warnings for Conservatives in this country? Because, I, you know, I think we're having a Conservative moment here. Most of the premiers Conservative. The, the federal, uh, you know, government would change hands if we had an election. But I look at what's going on with the UK Tories and um, it leaves me a little bit worried. So we'll talk about that when we come back. So things are going well for Canada's Conservatives. You look at provinces across the country, and most of them are held by a party that sits somewhere on the Conservative side of the spectrum. But in the United Kingdom, they've had a a federal government that is um, Conservative, at least in name, for quite some time. But uh, they've gone through a lot of leaders. They've gone through a lot of changes. And right now, looks like Labour is knocking at the door again. Uh, Daniel... uh, one friend said to me the other day, Labour is now running to the right of the UK Conservative Party. Is that a fair assessment? I'm not sure that is a fair assessment. Uh, it, it, your, your, your introduction, I think, is fair. Uh, you know, I can read the opinion polls like everyone else. Labour is, is definitely ahead at the moment. I think that has to do with, first of all, our having been in office for a long time. We've had 13 years. And it's quite difficult to repress the time for a change argument when you've been in for a long time. In the same way that even though I remember when Stephen Harper lost the election here, actually, most people thought that things were going pretty well, but that they'd still had enough. Right. So there's that. But there is the massive extra factor that we were the incumbents during the pandemic and the hangover that followed. Now, in general, being in office during the pandemic you benefited from a certain kind of swing to the incumbent mm-hmm. because there was the crisis. Being in office afterwards is a whole different thing because during the lockdowns, we and you and every other country paid people to stay at home and printed money to cover the difference. If you like, we were borrowing from our future selves and the moment has now come to repay some of that money. Now, that is an unpopular message with people who because, of course, we, we must remember the vast majority of voters in every country were very enthusiastic supporters of lockdown. Now, I suspect now, in the light of some of the data, they kind of regret that. 
on some level, even if they don't admit it. But what they don't want to hear is that the lockdown that they supported means that we dropped all this money that we now can't get back and therefore that there have to be tax rises or spending cuts, right? And and that's the huge problem, that there's, there's, a, a, there's always going to be a space in politics for the guy who comes along and offers sweet falsehoods over bitter truths, who says, I've got a magic wand. I can make all this go away. The, the 500 you know, billion pounds that we dropped during the lockdown, don't worry about that because I've got this magic wand called you know, wealth tax or windfall tax or something, and I can make it all go away. And actually, you know, as whoever is in office next is going to discover, that's, that's not the case. Uh, we borrowed heavily. We, our taxes are now very high. Our borrowing is still carrying on. Eventually, we are going to have to allow spending to go back to where it was uh, pre-lockdown. And that's that's just a very, very unpopular thing because human beings are loss-averse and a lot of the supposedly contingent and emergency spending that we, we brought in after 2020, people now dig in and defend it as though it was sort of an immemorial right. The, uh, you know, the... The spending in this country, it, obviously, the major pandemic spending dropped off, but it um, it continued on. Uh, it, well, other spending continued on. We're still up dramatically compared to what we were before, well above the rate of inflation, and the COVID programs have stopped. And if you suggest that maybe a 30 to 40% increase in the number of civil servants um, is unsustainable, well, you you want Granny to die in a snowbank? How dare you? Right. I mean, and, and I'm sure it's the same for the voters in the UK. Hundred percent, a hundred percent. And people say, "Oh, you want you know you want this kind of Randian skeletal state." Kind of. Do you know what? I would be given where we are now. I'd be happy with the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown spending levels. Right? That would be a massive improvement on where we are. Just to go back to where we were in January 2020 would be a massive improvement, and yet it is effectively unthinkable. There's this assumption that, spend, of course, like in Canada, the, the furlough spending and the, the emergency grants have stopped, but that health and welfare spending shot up during the, uh, the crisis. And there is an assumption that instead of it dropping back, taxes now have to shoot up to meet it. And I just don't think that's sustainable. We're, we're not going to be able to be solvent as a country unless we restore order and sanity to our public finances. And in a way, it doesn't matter who's in, in office, right? And unless that's tackled, we are headed towards a bad place. It may be that, that your friend who you were quoting earlier, who said Labour are running to the right of the Tories. I mean, I, I, I don't think that is true, but it is at least conceivable that a Labour government finding itself in office and recognising the nature of this problem might be able to undertake some reforms that a conservative government couldn't do, right? So a, a Labour government could more easily reform our healthcare system, could more easily reform our welfare system, you know, because it wouldn't be assumed that they were trying to kill your granny. Uh, they could probably raise our pension age or allow it to rise in, in line with rising longevity or at least stop increasing the pension, which is very hard for a Tory party um, because of where its electoral support is. Uh, they could make it actually paradoxically easier to build houses in some of the places where we need to build houses, where there are very articulate middle-class Tory voters <laughs> who are quite good at stopping it all. So there are things that a left-of-centre government could do, right? 
to to stimulate some reform and and, and that you know that a, a little bit i guess you're you know much more about it than i do but a little bit like paul martin was able to do some things coming from the center left in terms of beginning uh, budgetary reforms yeah correct uh, the tory party in the uk has been in office since 2010 biggest chunk you had david cameron there fairly stable government then you went to theresa may then quickly to bojo bojo seemed to stick around for a bit but then it was less trust now it's a uh, rishi sunak um is there stability now uh, because you know for those of us on the outside we were wondering okay well when's the next pm going to show up yes i don't think there's any threat to rishi sunak the but the instability you talk about is I think was a was a function of two two very destabilizing factors. First, the realignment that we talked about earlier, which was crystallized around Brexit in the UK, and second, the lockdowns and the response to the lockdowns. And you know, ultimately, that was what did for Boris. It was um, it wasn't Brexit or tax or whatever. It, it was. Uh, you know, it was the peculiar conditions created by COVID. Um, Anger over the parties and such after or during COVID made things yeah, untenable. Parties. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it was it, Boris hates parties, right? He's he's uh, he's the least party going guy. I mean, it, it, the, the the irony of it being, but you know, when you when you saw what it was, he was thanking somebody who'd worked for him. It wasn't a party, yeah. as you or I would understand it, of inviting people, right? But um, but all of that is all of that in a way was a kind of lightning rod. Um, the real problem for Boris, I think, was this: Boris was people knew him, people had his number already, right? People knew what they were voting for. They were voting for this kind of Falstaffian figure or Rabelaisian figure, this 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 rule breaker, this guy who transcended the petty norms, and they got exactly what they voted for. They uh, it, and it was that side of Boris that broke the deadlock in Parliament, delivered Brexit, won the twenty nineteen election. It was that side of Boris that led to the the quickest vaccine procurement in the world because he he didn't follow all the bureaucratic EU rules that everyone, everyone said at the time. Oh, if you if you if you don't join in the E program, the EU's program, you're going to be killing all these people. Actually, we were so far ahead of the EU that they actually closed the or threatened to close the border in, in annoyance with us. Uh, all of that, if you like, was people getting what they were voting for. But then the mood changed. The mood of the country changed because of lockdown. People became much more intolerant, much more puritanical, prissy, uh, censorious. And poor old Boris suddenly found himself as a kind of cavalier in a suddenly roundhead country, or as a as a as a Toby Belch in a in a in a country full of Malvolios, and. His character hadn't changed, but the mood of the nation had. No one was in the mood for jokes anymore. And in the end, I think that was what brought him down. Is the country in good hands with Rishi Sunak? Yeah, the, one of the ironies is that Rishi is seen widely among conservatives overseas, particularly as kind of a, 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 a whatever the British equivalent of a rhino is. A uh, wet. So, you know, a wet, a panty waist kind of, you know, <laughs> which really is just impossible to reconcile with the facts as we know them. On all the key issues, he is to the right of Boris. Um, 
you know, Boris uh, wavered until the last minute deciding how to vote on Brexit. Rishi had been writing Eurosceptic articles as a schoolboy. You know, he never hesitated. Uh, Boris was very pro-immigration, you know, boasted about giving amnesties to, to, to uh, illegals when he was a, uh, mayor of London. Rishi is much, much tougher on immigration. Uh, uh, Boris was very green. He loved all this, you know, net zero stuff, kept bringing forward the dates for phasing out engines and stuff. Rishi was always very sceptical of the cost. And the issue that Rishi resigned over as chancellor, which in the end is what brought Boris down, it wasn't anything to do with parties or anything. It was was that he was fed up with having to sign off on all these massive unfunded spending increases because Boris is a great spender. Now, I love Boris. You know, he, he was a friend of mine for many years. Uh, I voted for him as leader because I thought he would be popular uh, because of the sort of largeness of his character. And I, I don't regret that. I think if, if he was still leader, we'd be doing better. But let's not pretend for a second that Boris was a fiscal <laughs> conservative, right? I mean, this is the paradox. Rishi is actually a much better conservative by any normal definition. So why, why do people not see that? It's a really, really interesting question. Why do people... Uh, perceive him as being somehow not, you know, it's a little bit like why do people see Trump as being the proper conservative when he's obviously to the left of a lot of the other candidates on a lot of the issues? I, I think it's because we live in an age when the vibes trump the policies. Oh, yes, right? the, absolutely. The, the fuel, the, what, what, what you or I might pretentiously call the gestalt trumps the... So the classic example of this was the, the, the Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak leadership contest, um, in which I supported Liz Truss, um, who I, you know, uh, knew and liked. Um, But here's the irony. I mean, among the party members, I would say that three quarters of the ones who had voted leave in the referendum voted for Liz Truss, who had voted remain, right? And three quarters of the ones who voted remain voted for Rishi Sunak, who had voted leave. Why? Because Liz looked like a lever, sounded like a lever, right? She said blunt things in a provincial accent. She annoyed all the right people, right? Whereas Rishi, with his thin ties and his tight suit and his immaculate hair and all the rest, Rishi looks like the CEO of a multinational corporation. And people make their sort of tribal determination on the basis of these vibes, and then they reverse engineer the politics. Let's talk about the issue of Brexit. Um you came to my attention uh, with that magnificent speech in the European Parliament addressed to Gordon Brown, um, complete dressing down. It was magnificent. And we got to know each other after that. But I was long on the Brexit side. I thought it was the right thing to do. Most of the commentary that I hear now, as like before, says it was a horrible move. They never should have done it. It's It's been all downside. Um how do you view it as someone that championed this cause for years that was elected to go to sit in the European Parliament to say, let us go? How do you view it now? I mean, look, the, the bottom line is this. We, we could argue, and I, I, I could fill up a whole other interview talking about the things that have gone well, the, 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 the trade deals we've got, the Pacific tilt, the AUKUS deal. But the bottom line is this. We have outperformed, we have grown faster than the EU, whether you start counting in 2016 when the referendum happened or whether you start counting in 2020. Despite a worse lockdown, we've outperformed the EU. So whatever problems we've got, plainly, if Brexit is the factor, um, 
Brexit must be deemed more successful for us than having stayed in, right? Now, I cannot prove to you that if we'd stayed in, we wouldn't have grown even faster. Of course, I can't. I, no, no one can prove a, a negative or a counterfactual. But the, 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 the sort of disastrous scenarios that we were given, not just by Remain campaigners, but by the Bank of England, the Treasury, the OECD, the IMF, they have conspicuously failed to materialize. The trouble is that those people cannot now let go. They keep trying to press all the facts into their earlier predictions. I had really underestimated, and I, I blame myself for this now, I had really underestimated not just the institutional resistance from our officials and civil servants, but the cultural resistance from our media, our academics, our celebrities, and so on. This absolute determination to turn every bit of bad news into a because of Brexit and then dismiss every bit of good news as despite Brexit, right? which they are still doing after more than seven years. Uh, absurdly, right? And in fact, there's something particularly delicious, which is that we just, uh, about a month ago, the Office of National Statistics massively uprated our figures, revised our, our growth figures from, from 2020 upwardly, retrospectively. Uh, now, you know, these things happen. <laughs> An awful lot of people, including the Financial Times, the Economist, the BBC, the Labour Party, half the Tory West, and almost every foreign correspondent had been saying, if Britain has been growing more slowly than some of the others, it is purely because of Brexit. Okay, guys, well then, by your own logic, if it's all purely because of Brexit, now that you can see that we've been growing faster than France, Germany, and Italy, whatever, presumably, <laughs> by your own logic, you have to say that Brexit has been a big success. There are things we should have been doing We've been much too slow to sign ambitious trade deals. We've been much too slow to deregulate. And like I say, we've got this massive problem of, of this growth of the state because of the lockdowns. However, the fact of being a free, independent, sovereign country that we can vote for the people who pass our laws and sack them if we don't like it, that there's no, there's no world in which that is not a good thing and a massive improvement on where we were. Well, and you're not having people tell you to get rid of your fast uh, tea kettles or to start selling your beer by the leader. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we may, of course, have our own officials who will try and come up with whatever new inanities of their own. Um, you know, one of the reasons why the, the debate has changed is, paradoxically, is precisely because we're out now. So when we were a member, every new EU directive of that kind, uh, you know, the, the kettles of the wrong wattage or whatever, was a, was a big story. And that had an impact on public opinion. Or indeed, every every story about something going badly in the EU, like if there was a breakdown of the immigration system or if there was a downturn somewhere or a debt crisis, that was our problem when we were in the EU and therefore it was front page news. Now, if there is now a downturn in Germany or something, you, uh, you know, you don't care. You can find it in the inside pages, but it's not a big problem for us anymore. And, and for that reason, the, the uh, if you like the Eurosceptic, case just isn't being reported in the way that it was when it was still a problem. Maybe. Maybe if Pierre Polyev gets in, he can fast track a proper trade deal with the UK and we can get back to, I am to trade. Really, I'm really optimistic. And by the way, not just a bilateral deal. I would love to see uh, the Kanzuk policy, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK together with not just free trade, but free, free movement of, of labor, uh, free movement of workers. Um, this is 
still Tory party policy. It became Tory party policy under Andrew Scheer. It was Erin O'Toole's big thing. Pierre has gone, has not changed the policy. It's hugely popular among all the activists here in, in Quebec City. But you know what? It's even become liberal policy. I, I saw uh, uh, at the last liberal convention that they'd adopted it too. So I, I, this is like literally the most uncontroversial thing that hasn't yet been done that could easily be done. So, you know, let's hope that it'll be one of the early acts of a Polyev government. All right, Daniel, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Brian. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Again, remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, listen through your Alexa, enable devices, the app. Help us out by giving us a rating or a review and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.